are listening to the Elephant in the Room podcast with your host, Sutta Singh. Each week, we will bring you a diverse range of inspiring speakers on issues of inequality and inequity. You will hear stories about fairness, justice, belonging, and about best practice for creating a more inclusive workplace. So, if you are an individual or leader interested in a fairer, equitable, compassionate society and workplace, this podcast is for you. On the Elephant in the Room podcast this week, I speak with Vicky Sins, Climate and Energy Benchmark Lead at the World Benchmarking Alliance. We spoke about the recent launch of the Climate and Energy Benchmark, the significance of the insights and its impact on decarbonization and transition to low-carbon economy. Hi, Vicky. Good afternoon. Thank you for being a guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's great to speak to you today. Okay, let's jump straight to the questions. Give us a quick introduction to the World Benchmarking Alliance and what it does. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the World Benchmarking Alliance, we're a global NGO, and we were really founded by this idea that we needed to create a movement with a lot of different stakeholders, like policymakers, civil society organization, the financial community, to really look at what does accountability on companies look like, and really accountability in the face of the sustainable development goals. So looking at the heart of what do we need in order to have development done in a sustainable fashion, what is then the role of the private sector and how do we hold them accountable on that role? As you know, at the Paris Agreement and the Sustainable Development Goals, they were agreed over eight years ago. And we all realized that business has this significant role to play alongside governments but really look at the biggest, most influential companies. We have identified 2,000 of those and really look at these companies. They employ millions of people directly throughout their supply chain and they sometimes hold more influence that is larger than entire countries. So how do we then create this movement to collectively hold these companies to account and reaching these sustainable development goals? Yeah. That's so interesting, just the 2000 and how powerful they are. So last week, the World Benchmarking Alliance launched the second iteration of the Climate and Energy Benchmark. What is the purpose of the benchmark? I missed being there at the event in person, but I was there for the online session and it was an eye-opening session, let me tell you that. Yeah, that's good to hear and hopefully others have the opportunity to listen back to it. But indeed, this was the second iteration of the oil and gas industry benchmark launch. We look at what are the traditional high emitting sectors and how are they transitioning to a low carbon economy? And how do they do that in a just and equitable way? The reason why we look at the oil and gas sector is, as you probably know, and maybe for the listeners uh, as well, is the energy sector is responsible for three quarters of our global greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and of course, the use of fossil fuels is an important one as a, the main contributor to that. So we all recognize there is this need for this major shift away from fossil fuels. And we look then at who are then the biggest players in this supply chain uh, and how are they really looking into contributing to 
the goals of the Paris Agreement, which we said we want to limit global warming to a one and a half degree scenario uh, in order to have still a livable planet uh, for the next generations to come. So that's the reason why we look at the oil and gas sector specifically. And we look at a hundred companies within the oil and gas industry and what it is that they do or don't do in order to meet those goals. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it, that the oil and gas industry is responsible for three-fourths of the emissions, but how they have managed to get people to focus on other areas rather than on their own is very, very interesting. So how do you assess the company's wiki in this benchmark and what is the key focus of the assessment? So as I mentioned, we look at a hundred companies from different shareholder structures. So we also say influential companies does not yeah. automatically mean that these are the, the largest listed companies. Of course, they are also included. But for the oil and gas sector, yeah, the, the national oil companies also are an in, in very important player in this industry. So we look at different types of companies alongside the full value chain from upstream to downstream to midstream to full integrated companies. And the real focus lies on how credible are the plans that these companies are presenting. Because the last time we assessed this sample was 2021. We then look at collecting data and information. We do this in partnership with TDP, who a lot of these companies report to. So we are able to reuse the information. Then we use a methodology called ACT, Assessing Low Carbon Transition, really looking into pain. Has the company set the targets? Are these targets then aligned with the one and a half degree pathway that the IEA, the International Energy Agency, has presented for this sector? Then identifying and how are they then contributing to reaching their own target? So, for example, we look at are these companies making the right investments? What type of horizon do they have for the targets? Is it only a short-term horizon or do we see that a lot of these companies set targets to 2050, which we encourage, but then also this needs to translate them back into what does that mean in terms of the short term and the medium term? And how are they then aligning this really to these net zero pledges that they've made? Because it is really important that they are transparent around how they are going and intending to get there. Because to my earlier point about accountability, that can only happen if companies are transparent in what they are actually doing to achieve that. So true, because there are lots of things that lots of people are going and saying at big conferences and big forums. But what is the road to those? And what is the authenticity of those claims or those statements that they are making? Yeah, exactly. And a lot of these leaders, it's still a long way to go at 2050. It's an easy commitment to make if you might not be here, right? So, yeah. <laughs> But if you have to actually contribute to that in the next five years, that goes on you. So we also look at where is then this decision-making embedded in an organization? At what level is it really felt and understood that this transition is an integral part of their business model going forward? Yeah, have they really resourced for it and prepared financially for it? Considering that there are no set dates to phase out fossil fuels, how are companies preparing for the transition? I mean, this is the elephant in the room, I would say. Exactly. And that's, of course, also part of the reason why you're doing the podcasts, right? Is really looking to 
addressing that big item is it's been very clear that Antonio Guterres also said, right, the only credible future for this sector is that there is a phase-out date for fossil fuels. Because the problem is not only the managing of the emission of the fossil fuels, the problem is the fossil fuels itself, right? And that is something that really needs to be understood. And then often, of course, we get this feedback like, but yeah, but we're still so dependent and access to uh, energy is an important one. And that in itself makes the argument why these companies need to start planning for the transition because of the fact that we, everyone needs to understand that there is no long-term future for fossil fuels going forward if we want to keep this temperature goal in sight. So where we do see that companies, compared to 2021, there has been an increase in companies that have set targets. So at least we see that companies have started to maybe be a bit more public disclosing about the commitments that they want to make, but without this fossil fuel date inside, at the end date inside, it means that there is a lot of incremental change to their business model. It's like, how do I more efficiently use the resources available whilst actually the only way is that it's transitioning out of this business model and into another business model, being a lot of focus on on investing in, in, in renewables and technologies to get there. And these targets that these companies have set, like I said, it's like uh, it's an interesting uh, evolution that more companies have set the targets, but most do not include scope three in their target yeah. setting. And for the ones that don't know, but burning fossil fuels is the highest emission source, right? So as long as that's not captured in those targets, then there is also no credibility to neither the targets nor the transition uh, and the acknowledgement of these companies that they need to tackle that part of the transition as well. Vicky, I speak a lot about the global south because of, again, dependency and also not having a voice generally in the climate conversations as much as they should have. And we have China and India and the global south who are really dependent on fossil fuels. U.S. is a big party, but we are talking about Global South. And is there enough investment, sufficient investment, and are there enough viable innovations that can support mass movement to low-carbon solutions? Because at the end of the day, when you talk about people moving away or looking for solutions, there has to be some accelerant, something that will get people to adopt, there has to be some incentive. And of course, there has to be the existing technology. Yeah. No, and I think everything that we set and analyzed is science-based, right? It is not something that we come up with. No. And within the IEA, it has been very well investigated that all the technology that you need in order to achieve the 2030 targets that technology is there. They need significant investments from these companies to back them up and to deploy them in a high-rate fashion to support this. And then, of course, we look at the 2030 to 2050 targets that needs a lot of R&D and it leads to a lot of development. In principle, the development is already started and we know that with the right amount of financial investment that that technology can mature in order to support that longer-term objective. Of course, there is two sides to this, and especially also what you say in terms of developing countries. I think, A, we look at the companies themselves. This sector 
has made a record profit last year, yes. right? Four trillion US dollars in profit. Okay. That alone should tell these companies is like the thing you need to do with that profit is significantly invest into these deployments of these technology for your own operation, but also to help others to accelerate on reaching these goals. And we say that based upon the IEA paper and their scenarios, 77% of a company's total investment should be in low carbon technologies and then spread across the different yeah. uh, timeframes. And the sector is far, far off of doing that, right? And the transparency on what it is that they're contributing to the low carbon technology is very low. So the call to action that we say is A, there needs to be more transparency in these companies. And B, there are good examples of companies that are aligning their full investments to the low carbon scenario that is needed. And we also want them to highlight this leadership more so that we also see it is possible to do this. Yeah. But it should be this strategic conviction that they do. And then the point around the developing countries, the finance has a massive role to play in that because they also need to unlock finance, equip development banks in different regions, because we've not talked about the just transition elements in this, but a lot of these countries are very dependent from a social perspective as well of this industry. If we foresee that there is going to be a demand side reduction in the future, we have the obligation to plan for not only the workers and communities, but for these whole countries that they are equipped and financially equipped to move to a new economy going forward. This is very interesting. I think one of the examples that we can look at, actually, it's not even an adjacent industry. It's a pandemic. And look at how people have collaborated because they believe that lives were going to be lost. The lives that are being lost because of climate change and climate extreme events, we don't look at it in totality. We are not looking at it as something that is so imminent that is impacting our day-to-day lives. And I think that is the urgency that is probably required. And collaboration and not hiding something, share it and let it grow and let it make positive change. Vicky, moving on to the next question, what is the preparedness of the oil and gas industry towards taking positive action for climate change? Is it possible for the industry to create a roadmap you were talking about just transition, for a just transition, because it is traditionally an exploitative industry. I think these are two questions that have two different answers almost, because it's like, what is the preparedness of the oil and gas industry for positive action? We've seen some glimmers of hope. Yes. Yeah. But it's very scattered around different topics. Some are doing well on investments, some are taking steps to include scope free, but overall, we would say that this sector is not prepared to take a sufficient action to provide a positive contribution. Hence, our focus as well. And, and probably we will get towards the end as well as like what's next, but very much to accelerate accountability to this sector. And it has come to the point where, of course, there's always been a discussion that this sector needs to be part of the solution because of their importance in the industry. But what if they're not prepared? What is then needed in order to create a solution? Because going forward and continuing the way we do is is not an option. And I think that should be clear. 
I do think that it is still possible for the industry to create a roadmap for a just transition because of the fact that they have been able to build this infrastructure. They're big infrastructure companies. They're big companies that have highly trained talents, right? They have been able to build communities. They have been able to build, bring industries to different countries. So if they will use that to have a vision about what is the future workforce that this industry is in need of. And what we mean with that is the future workforce needs to include green and decent jobs, not just jobs. They need to be green and decent jobs. So if they create this vision about the workforce for the future, I think they have the ability to play a leading role in that. We have seen some signs of optimism there where there are companies that understand their role of the just transition to work with governments, they work with labor unions to really understand what does mobilization of the future workforce look like, but it is still early days. And it also requires cross-sectoral collaboration because some people might find new jobs in other industries, right? And also sometimes geographical mobilization because not all jobs will be one by one replaced in the region where it is. And I think the gas industry has the, the relationships with governments. They are strong union forces, so they have the ability to engage in this uh, stakeholder dialogue. Um, so yeah, I'm optimistic that they, there is the potential. I'm a bit skeptical whether or not they will deploy that to the, to the fullest potential, but I hope that with the insights that we give, can give this push for them to step up. Yeah, it's about using their enormous clout and power and wealth towards a better future for everyone. So we are talking about the oil and gas industry, but I have to ask this question. This is integrity of commitments and greenwashing by the industry. What are your thoughts? We've spoken about the connect between leaders, about what they say and actual connection to how much of that is embedded within the business planning or within the long-term vision of the company? I think overall, the last years, the focus has been a lot on improving targets and pushing companies to set targets. And now people have come to the realization that this can only be done if it has integrity to it and that the commitments that they make are not just to say that they're doing nice and well, but that it actually needs to translate into proper action because otherwise we might be celebrating nothing, right? And, and I think that with the launch of the Integrity Matters guiding document by the UN Secretary General, which very much highlights, okay, and makes it very concrete about we can only celebrate this leadership if these criteria are being met. And I think with that, it really allows also the industry to actually say, so far what I've done does not really match the integrity criteria, but then also to present a plan on how am I going to meet those criteria in the next, say, one and a half, two years to really make sure that they are accelerating on the agenda. I think for what we've seen, the exclusion of scope three, I think that is a big one. Like you said, it's been an industry where they like to talk about other things. <laughs> so there's been a lot of focus on the methane reduction, about reduction in their 
scope one and two, because that was at least what we see is an easier one to overcome than the scope three. But even there, we see that the actual emission reduction in scope one and two has not happened. So even there, where we say, okay, there is this additional focus on other topics, we have not seen the accelerated role. And hence we say, okay, that needs to be called out. And we are now at a moment, eight years since the Paris Agreement, still six and a half years to go to reach the 2030 target. This is the moment where we need to start to call out greenwashing. We need to start start calling out the integrity of these plans. Otherwise, there is no point. Absolutely agree. There is no point. And it seems 2030 is just looming. Well, it's the start of 2023. Suddenly, we are already in almost at mid-July and summer is here. Uh, at the launch of the report last week, Vicky, I was standard, but maybe not very surprised to hear one of the speakers mention that pension funds have not set red lines on fossil fuel funding. And what this means is that 88 billion pounds has been invested in fossil fuel by UK pension funds and banks. It seems very careless considering how we are on the brink. What are your thoughts on the implications? The amount of talking we do about climate change, it seems to not be going beyond the talk because how could you still be so heavily invested? Yeah, you're right. And I think it, it's excellent that in this case, it's related to the Make My Money Matter campaign. I think it's brilliant to at least give this insight because first of all, it was not very transparent on what that amount actually is that is invested. Of course, it's always been like, it is invested because the returns are still very high. And investing in the fossil fuel company as a shareholder still gives you a lot of financial return. And of course, what we now see, and this is something that I think will increasingly become more important. A, there will be way more push to banks and pension funds to align their portfolios and their investments to the Paris Agreement. And we've done a study on the financial sector. We see that there is this big gap. So really mobilizing their business models to finance for the good of the sustainable development. That is needed. But also we will see increased amount of regulation, right? That will come, that will happen with the EU regulation coming and leading the way. But we also will see quite some litigation coming, right? We've seen climate litigation stepping up. And I think, coming from a financial industry background myself, looking into investing is always a decision about risk-reward, right? So far, they've always seen it as investing, the risk-reward to be a good one. What if we factor in the risk of regulation and factor in the risk of litigation? I think that risk-reward will reduce quite rapidly. And hence, that's what we will need, accountability for the sector itself for the financial sector, but then also doubling down on, on the regulation and the litigation part to support that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it takes me very neatly into the next question, which is about how do we incentivize or cajole or convince the industry to take action for change? Because there has been call for action for a very long time. And yep. like so close to 2030 now, people yep. have not listened and people have not paid attention and things it's not going to happen on its own. Yeah. No, and I think it's also the realization we had. It's like, okay, actually, if you look back, 
we've done this study in 2021, now it's 2023, all the engagement efforts that collectively were done have not resulted in a massive improvement for this sector. So it's also uh, good to acknowledge that some of these engagement efforts, we know that they take long time, but some of the engagement efforts have failed. And that has also resulted in some of the main shareholders have stepped out, right? It's the announcement of the Church of England to step out of one of their main engagements that they had with one of the oil and gas companies is an example of that. But that also means that we cannot leave this sector alone, right? And apparently this sector by itself is not going to make that the biggest change, right? Again, I would like to highlight there are some examples that we do want to highlight because we also want to really give credit to where credit is due. But overall, this sector is massively failing and is responsible for the biggest part of the emissions. So the need for accountability on this sector is definitely needed. And again, then we have a split, of course, between the publicly listed companies where there has to be a very big push from shareholders, from finance, from regulation, from country ambitions to really push for it. We definitely want to collaborate with all types of demand side initiatives, really looking into how can you also make sure that the demand side takes their responsibility by reducing the demand so that the sector is also pushed for change. But then also, how can our results equip the finance sector? How can they equip regulators and, and, and also potential litigation efforts in order for really holding these, these companies to account? And also with mass mobilization of stakeholders, right? Because yeah. we've launched this report and we would like that it inspires a wide variety of stakeholders to come to the table and really say, this is outrageous. This cannot happen. We want that this sector takes their responsibility. And how do we mobilize collectively? Because corporate accountability and climate accountability requires collective responsibility, right? And how can we mobilize the collective in order to really um, yeah, hold this sector into account? Yeah, one voice is not going to do it. It has to be like everyone, almost everyone. We're on the last question. This is what happens when you enjoy the conversation too much. You come quickly to the end. So I'm not a skeptic. I am always a glass half full kind of person. But are there any companies doing it right? You did allude to a couple of some who are doing some things well. Yeah. And I think we have to be optimistic in this world. Otherwise, at least yeah. also working on the climate topic. Otherwise, yeah. it's going to be a very dooming gloom. But yeah, like we said, there are some signs of best practices, but it's very scattered throughout. So there is, of course, the biggest challenge is that we cannot point to one or two or a handful of companies that does it all. So we really think that there needs to be the showcasing of this individual leadership on specific topics, which we will do later on in this year as well. So to really show that implementation is possible, right? Because we often get the feedback like, yeah, we understand these criteria, but implementation is too hard. But actually what we want to do with our study is to also show that implementation is possible. It is possible for companies to show leadership, but they need to accelerate all this. And we have to also have the enabling environment to really step up in holding these companies to account. Like I said, demand side reduction, but also labor union involvement. We see that there's more and more labor unions involved who understand that yeah. they need to come to the 
table. And I think others like regulation litigation will increase, but also where I think leadership within companies on a specific topic will also accelerate this enabling of other companies to actually think, hey, there is merit and there, it is commercially viable to start developing these type of new projects and really step up the plate so that we also make the ones that don't do it, that we make them obsolete in the future. Yeah. Would you like to name a few or you're waiting for that? I think, yeah, I think there's our report has quite an extensive examples and use cases in there. Of course, one of the companies that is leading the way, at least leading in our benchmark is Neste. Uh, because I think they are the ones who at least acknowledge the transition. They have a scope one, two, and three target sets. They are reducing their absolute emissions, but they've not included a phase-out date for fossil fuel yet. There's other examples, actually quite a broad range of examples, also companies that have really stepped up on the just transition front. So I definitely hope that the, the listeners will also read the report. It's not that big of a report. 30 pages, it's doable, and get inspired by these examples because there are glimmers of hope. But we need to accelerate on the accountability. You don't need to name them, but are there companies from the global south who are making an effort or trying to do this? No, I think the good thing about is that, as I mentioned, we have quite a few national oil companies in there, and we have seen a very significant uptake of the engagement of these national oil companies also with us to understand actually what is the demand and what is the international trends that they need out here. We do a lot of capacity building with these national oil companies. These are national oil companies that also understand their role in the international space. And we have quite some examples uh, on there also, I think, named in our Just Transition report, but also where we will work more on what does capacity building look like in the region? Because we do think, and they have a different roadmap towards the transition. They will go at a different pace than the international oil companies in, in different regions. So that's okay, as long as the transition towards the end goal is somewhat aligned on, and there are still some steps to take in terms of transparency and reporting yeah, and yeah. also capacity building. But there are good examples and we do see them coming. They're not, of course, in the top 10 yet, but we do see that they have improved over time as well because of the involvement into different initiatives, signing up to different international pledges, but also in terms of joining capacity building opportunities where they are uh, available. That's interesting. Then That's something positive to end our conversation on. Thank you very much, Vicky, for this very, very interesting conversation. And I hope that more people go to the World Benchmarking Alliance website and read the second iteration of the Climate and Energy Benchmark. It is very interesting and it concerns all of us. So more people need to understand it and know about what is happening in this world. Thank you very much. Thank you for the time. Thank you for joining us this week on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs and events. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday for new episodes.